0: And if you're using the pew Bible that's under your seat or under the seat in front of you, page 263, I believe, is where you will find that text. For the past two weeks, we've been looking at chapters 11 and 12, and this will sort of round out this high watermark in many ways of the life of David, which is our series this winter spring learning to live out of the grace of God for His glory. And uh, we have much to discuss this morning as we continue on, so let us waste no more time and jump right in. So um, with that, while I will be discussing some of the things we looked at last week, our reading for this morning will primarily be in chapter 12, verses 15 to 23. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 15b. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead." Verse 20, Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then a servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things. Um, Otherwise, we could not, by your Spirit alone, that we would uh, leave here changed people such that as good soil receives a seed and produces a fruit, that our hearts would do the same. And would you do this for your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Before we get started, just a little note about this sermon. Uh, This, a lot of what is said this morning requires, in my mind, a healthy discussion about justice and what it means for God to be just. And in order for us not to be here all day, I think I took out about four pages, you can thank me later, but I, I'm, I, I say that for a couple of reasons. One, I'm not skirting a difficult issue here, it's just something that we, we can't fit everything in here. So my assumption this morning is that God, because of his character, is just, because he's holy, and that in all of his decisions he makes, he is just. But if that is your question, and I know that it is many people's question, especially today, as they read the Bible, and especially texts like this, I would encourage you, please, come, let's talk about that over coffee or lunch. Um, That would be a wonderful thing to do if that is your question, if that is something that you're having a hard time getting your arms around, how do we reconcile that as people, as we read the Bible? But having said that, we're gonna look at three things that aren't printed in your bulletin this morning. The first is the dilemma of David's sin. The second is how God judges David's sin, and then we're gonna look at David's response to God's judgment. And then if we have time, hopefully, some implications about what this means for us. So three things, the dilemma of David's sin, how God judges his sin, be the second point, and David's response to God's judgment. No introduction this morning, getting right to it. Let's look at the the dilemma of David's sin. And the dilemma is this, how does God continue to keep his promises to David, but at the same time, in the sight of David's sin, remain just and holy? Let me say that again. How does God continue to keep his promises to David on the, one, on the one, on one hand, but remain just in the sight of David's sin on the other? If you've been around Wallace, or maybe uh, just around a church that holds to the Reformed doctrine, you've heard of the word covenant before. If you've read the Bible, you've probably heard the word covenant. But Uh, If you're familiar with that, you know that that is another word for promise. And that as we understand covenant, this is the way that God chooses to relate to his people. So all throughout the Old Testament and even into the New, as Jesus announces a new covenant, this is how God relates to us. He makes promises to his people. And that's what it means for uh, for, for, for the Bible to to, to talk about covenant. And and all throughout the Old Testament— we see God making and even renewing the covenant with his people, primarily because it's the people, Israel in the Old Testament, but us as well, we break the covenant. So he renews it based on his own mercy and grace. If you're interested in this topic, I I cannot encourage you to read, and and Michelle, maybe we have it here. If not, we can get it. As Far as the Curse is Found by Michael um, Williams. As Far as the Curse is Found. It's a great book on understanding the covenants of God. You could also check out Christ of the Covenants by O. Palmer Robinson. But from the time that Adam and Eve sin and are removed from the garden as we enter the the story of Scripture, God's covenantal promise, uh, from, from the time of the garden, sorry, all the way to where God fulfills His covenantal promise in Jesus in the New Testament, we see that God works through covenantal promises that he makes to his people for how he will bring redemption and renewal to his creation that has now fallen. And so when we come to 2 Samuel, right, with, with, with the plot still being worked out before us, we have to remember where we are in the story. And so as we enter this dilemma with King David having sinned um, with Bathsheba and Uriah, as we saw two weeks ago. One of the most important texts that we have to hold alongside of that is 2 Samuel 7 that David Minor preached on back in March. If you're unfamiliar with this passage, highlight it, read it after, after, or this afternoon. But it is here that, day, that God renews and establishes his covenant again with David remembering the covenant of old with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so on and so forth. This, friends, then, is the promise that governs everything from here on out. And what is that promise? Well, there are are at least three things in this promise that, that God tells David in 2 Samuel 7, and that is he promises David that his steadfast love will not depart from him, he promises David that it will actually be through David's line that God fulfills his covenantal promise, that God's promises here to be a father to David's royal descendant, whoever that might be. And thirdly, God promises to establish his David, David's house forever. All right, got it. That's, that's our lesson on covenantal theology this morning. So, what's, what's the dilemma? Well, as we have seen in the past two weeks, David has sinned greatly and in such a way that, one, it requires death according to the law of God. What David did requires death. There's, there, he's not above it as king. But two, David has despised the word of the Lord, as we looked at last week. And like all sin, God cannot simply ignore it or let it pass. This would be against his holy character. But I would suggest that there's more here than just David's sin. It's actually God's own name here that is on the line that is now open for mocking because of David's sin as it is revealed to the rest of the world. Paul will say something like this in Romans chapter 2, referring to this. The name of God is blasphemy among the Gentiles because of you, referring to the Jews at this point in time. And then he'll go on and handle the Gentiles after this in Romans 2. But this is what he means by that. All to say, God must act according to his name, which is to say that he must always act, what, justly. And he must do so in the face of sin. So the dilemma here is this. God does, or how does God judge sin? How does he remain just while at the same time keep the very promises he has made to David and to Israel and it's important again that we start here because if you're if you're new to Christianity or if you're trying to understand the Bible or, or I would if you, if you've been in the church forever, I would suggest that this is the question that hangs over the entire Scriptures, entire Old Testament, even the New Testament. But it's also the question that we should never get past as believers. How is it? Uh, that God continues to keep his promises to us on one hand and be just in the sight of our sin on the other, and perhaps more important or or pertinent, why? Why does he do this? it's a question David actually gets close to asking in Psalm 8. After looking at all of creation and its beauty and wonder, he turns from the vastness of creation in that that psalm uh, to the smallness of mankind, and he says there in verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him? And we might say, well, David, David, don't you know your theology, man? You're made in the image of God. And of course David knows that. He's actually going to go on to say that in verse 5 or 6. That's not what David's asking. David is asking, why do you bother? Why do you pay attention to us? We are so small compared to the vastness of your creation. At the same time, we have sinned and we deserve judgment. Yet, yet, you enter covenant with us. You make promises to us. And these aren't small promises, by the way. These are cosmic promises to renew all of creation, let alone us. And you bind those promises, we find out later, to yourself. You promise everlasting life to sinners who deserve death. Why? How? That's the dilemma. That's sitting right here in 2 Samuel 12. And that's the question I would suggest that we also never, ever lose sight of as Christians. Right, even when Jesus shows up and we are able to, to supply God's solution to this dilemma, it doesn't make the question go away. It shouldn't, it shouldn't remove our wonder and our awe and our amazement at what God has done. In fact, you might say it intensifies it, that God would remedy this dilemma of our sin and his promises, what, through his only son. That's, that's how he's going to do it. In fact, the New Testament is going to ask us to rest in that but for now this is the dilemma of David's sin and it means that we must hold God's promises to David alongside what his sin as well as we move through the story of Scripture because this is actually how we begin to understand what Jesus is doing when he shows up in the New Testament it is the question that hangs over the entire Bible And if we're going to understand what happens next, we have to hold this together. That what God decides to do to David, which is what we're going to move to next, and how God judges David, we have to recognize that he's acting with both of those things in mind. His promises to David that his kingdom will remain forever. That his steadfast love will not be removed from David yet. At the same time, I must punish your sin. So let's get to it. Second point How God Judges Sin. What we see in God's judgment of David, of his sin in chapter 12, is that David will actually not receive God's full judgment. Instead, what David will receive is mercy. What we see in God's judgment of David's sin is that David does not receive the full judgment. He instead receives mercy. Which means that David understands that he does not receive what it is that he actually deserves. That's what mercy means. It means that you don't receive something that you actually deserve. And and, and it's actually how David begins that wonderful psalm, Psalm 51, that we touched on last week, but we'll hold together next to this text this morning as well. What what, What is the opening line of that psalm of repentance Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O Lord, according to what your steadfast love. See, mercy is where all of our gospel stories begin. We quoted Eugene Peterson last week as we uh, see ourselves in David's story here. uh, what What we see is is the gospel story here that flows out of our sin story. But mercy means that this is where all of our stories begins in, uh, in, in view of scriptures. So therefore, Christians are people who, like David, do not get what they deserve, and we see this in God's judgment of David's sin. So how does God judge, God, God judge David's sin? Let's look at the text here. In short, God holds... To his own word with David. That is, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. God repays evil for evil to David, which is exactly what Leviticus 24 17 requires. And so, as we look at God's judgment over David, it's important to remember that this is God's law to Israel, which functioned, let me say this first as a theocracy or nation-state, under the rule of God in a very unique way. It's important as we look at judgment that we understand its context. So what this means is that God is going to deal with David differently than he's going to deal with you, and we'll see that at the end of this sermon, hopefully. But just just so we understand, this changes in the New Testament when the law, specifically the judicial and the ceremonial law, uh, is fulfilled in Christ this is why in the New Testament, when Jesus speaks and he says, you have heard that it was said, you might, might recall that, he is referencing the law of the Old Testament and is about to explain what this means in light of the Messiah, Jesus, coming as the fulfillment of the law. So consider Matthew 5:38 real quick. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, Jesus says, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, but I say to you, this is why this changes, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn uh, to him, the other also. What's the point? How God judges David here and deals with his sin is going to be different than how God judges us. So I just need to make that point clear before we move on. So we look at the text here, though, in verse 10. God says through Nathan what? Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Okay, first, to say that the sword shall never depart from your house is to announce judgment upon David's house as a whole. So this judgment won't just affect David, but it will what affect the entire house. You might say this is what it truly means to be covenantal. The sins of the fathers have consequences to the third and fourth generation. And as I say that, I recognize that nothing, nothing could be more foreign and wrong to Americans who, what, uh, value individual freedoms and personal rights. We don't get covenantal anything. (laughs) But I digress. Yet this judgment is what upon David's house. Richard Phillips writes this, as a result, David would never be free from violent conflict from this time forward. Since David had slain innocent blood, he would would suffer from the recurrent bouts of murder. The point being that for those who might have thought that David got off easy last week, here's what's before him. And this will happen. You can read on. Actually, four of David's own sons will die before him, just as David himself called for in the judgment of the rich man in last week's text, that the poor man be restored for old david will lose four sons three of which will die by swords wielded by members of david's own house this is god's judgment upon david but we're not done second god says through nathan i will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly but it will, but i will do this thing before all israel and before the sun it's another hard text Again, though, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, except where David took a man's wife in secret, God will what? Give his wives to others in public. The point being that the pride of David that led to these secret sins and misdeeds dark will become public shame for him as God's king, as God's anointed. Now, at this point, as good Old Testament Christians, right, we understand, we're waiting, this is the final verdict. We are to expect the final judgment to be announced, at, of, that, that being of David's death. But it doesn't happen. And why? Because David is under mercy. Mercy for David means that he will not receive the judgment of what someone else will. As we saw last week, David won't die because God has truly put away David's sin. But since God cannot simply ignore this sin because he is perfectly just, we get verse 14, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Again, what we see in God's judgment of David's sin is that David will receive mercy, which means he does not receive what he deserves someone else does, and in this case, it's David's son. This is not easy. This is actually very difficult, and it should be for all of us in here. I don't have easy answers for why God deals with David's sin in this way, what strikes us first is what did this child do to deserve this? Heck, we could go back the text before. What did those women do to deserve what they're going to get? Is this fair? But we could say the same for Uriah and Bathsheba. Is what happened to them fair? And see, while I could wax eloquently uh, with some theological truths about what's fair to make it sound better for us this morning, I don't think that's helpful. And I don't think that's the direction the text is leading us. Instead, I want to acknowledge the fact that God is doing something here that that requires my trust, not my full understanding. I don't fully understand what it means for God to be holy. And I've been to seminary, if you can believe that. I don't. I don't fully understand the cost of sin. I can point to it and point you to it, but that doesn't mean I fully understand its cost. I don't fully understand justice. I don't. And anyone who would say that they do, well, there there might be bigger problems there, actually. And the reason for all this is because I am finite. You are finite, which means you are limited. I am limited. And because of that, there are missing pieces to what God is doing and why. And so we need to be okay with coming to text like this, not wrapping it up in something nice, and saying, this is very hard. Matter of fact, I'm very uncomfortable with this. I don't fully understand why this is the way and I wish David's sin could be dealt with in another way and I would invite you to respond the same this morning. Don't be okay with this. Even our best theological minds come to texts like this, and though we acknowledge the cost of sin, right, we've written books on it, we've written books on God's holiness, the need for justice, the reality of judgment, they don't have answers to make this go down easier. We need to be comfortable with not having all the answers as our answer sometimes. But... What I do want us to remember is while we might not fully understand God's ways here because of his character, because of who he is, we can trust that he is good. And we can trust that he is good because we can trust that God is what? Always just. It's impossible for him not to be. And if God is acting justly, because that's the only way that God can act, then the only one who has the authority, or as the only one who has the authority to give and to take life, I can trust God even when I don't fully understand what is happening. After all, should I forget that I am still under mercy in the first place? David is still under mercy in the first place. And so are you. So there is a sense in which what right do we truly have to question God's goodness in the first place? Should that mercy be removed? This is how God judges David's sin. And before we move on, the question becomes, Can we hold our confusion and uncertainty with texts like these alongside confidence that God is always good and is acting justly? And I know as soon as I ask that, it splits the room. There are those who say yes, and there are those who say, I'm not there. I'm not there. And while we were all in process with that question, I would point you to David who can. I will point you to David who can hold those two things together, even in the face of God's judgment over his own sin, which results in the loss of his own son. David knows that he is at God's mercy, and so whatever God decides to do, including that, it is more than fair. And the places where David doesn't fully understand what God is doing, none of it, none of it, and this might be the brightest part of this entire narrative, detours his trust and confidence in who God is. And we see this in his response. Let's move to that. Finally, David's response to God's judgment. David's response to God even in the face of judgment is actually to move towards God and not away. And why does he do this? Because even in his judgment, the Lord's natural, the Lord's natural disposition towards his people as those under mercy is to what? According to David, show grace. Which is, by definition, to give someone something they do not deserve. And David knows this. First, we see God afflicts the child as he has said that he would. And in verse 16, David does something that is strange according to those here in the text. He sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat Food with them on the seventh day, the child died. What's what's the, pro, what's the why is this strange? Well, this is typical behavior after death has occurred. After death of a loved one, you would fast and weep and grieve as part of, of that process. David does it what while the child is still alive. Why? Why he tells us in verse 22. Look at it while the child was still alive. I fasted and wept for. I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. See, David's response is to trust in God's grace, even in the face of judgment. That is that the Lord's natural disposition towards him is to show him grace and mercy and not take it away. Who knows, David says, who knows? Maybe the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. In other words, who knows whether the Lord will give me what it is I don't deserve because that's what He does. And this is what David appeals to for his son. Now, it's hard to say I'm thankful for this, but for our purposes. I'm thankful for this. How does God respond? Does he grant David's request? No. And immediately again, everybody in this room can now empathize with David again. But notice that that doesn't change David's trust in God, does it? It doesn't change who he is. No. Nowhere in this text do we hear of David's anger of his bitterness, of his distrust for the Lord, not giving David what it is that he has asked for. And by way of illustration, we're going to look at one little spot. We're not going to be able to look at this next week because we have a guest speaker. But if you, if you, if you go to Second Samuel 24, which was next week's text, right, David asked for this census. And, and this angers the Lord because essentially David is trusting in the strength of his armies and not in the Lord himself. And so God comes to him and and, and convicts David. David confesses again of his sin here in this text, saying, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. And so the Lord gives him three options. He gives him three options. The first is you can have three years of famine in the land. Two, you can have three months of David fleeing as his enemies pursue him. Or third, you can have three days of pestilence over the land. Those are his choices. And here's what David says Verse 14, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of men. So He picks the third option. Of all of David's experience up at this point, what's the point here? He is still able to say that it is far better, it is far better to be in the hands of the Lord than in the hands of men. And why? Because God is merciful and gracious. That's who he is. In other words, what David is saying is, by and large, what I experience from the hand of the Lord is his mercy, not his anger, is his grace and not his judgment. And that's who God is. And this is what leads David upon news of the death of his son to get up, Wash, anoint himself, and go to the house of the Lord and worship. I'm not sure I get that. That's what he does. This is how David responds, though. Because David loves the Lord. David trusts him. David appeals to to what is, most, what is God's dominant disposition towards him, which is his grace and his mercy. This is his response. So we've seen the dilemma of David's sin this morning. We've seen how God judges David's sin, and we've seen David's response to his judgment. What then does this mean for us as we learn to live out of God's grace for his glory? And this is sort of a funnel for the past two weeks of questions that I think we need to address, um, and we won't get to all of them, but this is for uh, some, some implications for what we've looked at, okay? And the first is this, as Christians who are learning to live out of grace, right, we have got to begin to distinguish between God's judgment and sin's natural consequences in our life. I've received that question numerous times over the past couple of weeks, does God judge us today the way that he judged David here in this text and you can say yes and no to that no in that if you are in Christ your sins are put away that is to say your sins have already been judged that is what Jesus is doing on the cross they have not put away. But yes, in that upon Christ's return, for those who are not in Christ, there is judgment coming that is going to be far worse than what we see here in this text. So one of the things this means for Christians is that we need to be careful about thinking that every bad thing that happens to us is, is judgment for my sin. That's not the New Testament teaching of how God works post-cross and resurrection. We truly are in the days of grace. Forgiveness is what God offers now, not his judgment. That has been placed on Christ. That's why in our confession of sin, we were reminded that your sins past, present, and future have been made clean only by the blood of Christ. At the same time, though, this doesn't mean that we don't experience what consequences for our sin For example, if you murder someone today, please don't, but if you do, God is not going to take away a spouse or child from you. He's not working an eye for an eye. He took that already from his son. He will forgive you and do so immediately because of Jesus. At the same time, though, you will suffer consequences for that sin that will go further than just a prison sentence. All sin has natural consequences to it because all sin goes against the law and the character of God. It's how the system is built. And you've heard this illustration. If you take a piece of wood, right, wood has grain with it. So if you go with the grain, right, and and your hand goes across that piece of wood, goes with the grain, you experience the joys of whatever a smooth piece of wood, what joy it'll bring you. But if you go against it, you experience something different. You experience, you might say, natural consequences to it. Likewise, sin has its own natural consequences because it is going against the grain of God's law. That's different than thinking God is actively punishing you because of some wrong that you're doing. And we need to make that distinction as we live out of grace, as we live out of the grace of God who has given us all things in Christ. Two then, second implication, this calls us then for Christians to live as though our sin is truly put away because it is. Living out of grace, as we see David doing here, is truly living as though your sin has been put away because it is. David appeals to God's grace on behalf of his child. Why? Because he has experienced it already and his forgiveness to put away his own sin. The appeal to David's son, that God would save him, is is the consequence, if you will, is the fruit of already experiencing the grace of God to him and his sins being put away. Likewise, Christians are invited to do the same in the name of Christ. And this means that we should have confidence because of this to both approach God with our repentance, as we looked at last week, but also with our petitions, which is asking the Lord for what it is that we want So one, we can move toward God and others in deeper repentance because we don't have to wonder what God will do. He has told you what he will do. He will forgive you. At the same time, though, because of our sins and because they're put away, they truly are, this becomes the defining characteristic of who God is to us. That is, he is merciful and gracious all the time. Not some of the time, all the time. I think sometimes we see the cross, right? We look at the table, perhaps even, and we think, man, that was probably all of the mercy and grace that God had to give us. No, it doesn't run dry. This is a wellspring that bubbles up for eternity. The error we experience, however, is when we pray for something, and what? God doesn't grant it. And so we move in the direction of either thinking, I've done something wrong, or God isn't good, or maybe perhaps he's not real. When the reality is, as we look at this text, God always answers prayers, but he doesn't always answer them what? The way that we want him to. And so the question becomes is in the face of God not granting your request, is he still good? You didn't get that job, but you asked the Lord for it. Is he still good? You don't get pregnant, but you have asked the Lord for children. Is he still good? Your children are not walking with the Lord, but you have asked Him to be faithful. Is He still good? Your child dies. Is He still good? You don't get married. Your cancer does not go away and it's going to kill you, but you have asked the Lord to remove it. Is He still good? David thinks so, and that's good enough for me right now. When we live as though our sins are put away because they are, we recognize that the most merciful and gracious thing that God could do for us has already been done for us. Jesus becoming a ransom for sinners and that grace is the lens then which we look at everything else which gives us the confidence to move towards God in our repentance but also in our petition to ask him for the things that we want and if you are in Christ your sins have been put away what would change in your life if you lived as though that were true? Thirdly Learning to live out of the grace of God for his glory means that we learn to sing as the hymnist writes, whatever my God ordains is right. If you're familiar with this hymn, let me read you the third stanza. Whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true, each morn anew. Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whatever my God ordains is right. What shines the brightest out of David's response and his life to follow is that above all things, David trusts that the Lord is good and can be trusted no matter what happens, that whatever my God ordains is right. And what this ultimately means is that there is nothing, there is nothing in David's life that he hasn't surrendered before the Lord not even his own son, that would come between him and the Lord. And the question for us, is this true for us? Is this true for you? What is it that if God were to take it away, would cause you to say, that's not a God that I can trust? He didn't give me this thing. He didn't show up at this point in time in my life. That is not a God I can trust. Or is it this hurts And and I am even undone, but whatever my God ordains is right. Learning to live out of God's grace assumes you already get more than you deserve, which leads to trusting his ways, even when you don't fully understand him. Which is why Paul calls the church to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, but to weep with those who are weeping why we can do this. What's between you and God, though, that is keeping you from trusting that everything that He has uh, ordained to come to pass is actually good and what is best for you? Lastly, learning to live out of God's grace ultimately means our sin leads to the death of another. And this is where we'll leave it this morning. The pain and the discomfort and the the, the overall confusion we feel in David's son being afflicted because of David's own sin becomes a pattern then for us. For how God will deal with the dilemma of our sin and his promises as well. What we experience in micro as we read this text is what we are meant to experience in macro as we see Jesus go to the cross for sin that he did not commit. This is why, In this way, living under mercy and out of grace means our sin leads to the death of another, and that is Jesus. And friends, we should not grow comfortable with Jesus and the cross, for it was my sin that put him there. At the same time, this is the gospel story that flows out of our sin story. Here are Paul's words in Romans chapter 3. It is the cross, it, was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be what? Both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is how God keeps his promises to us. But at the same time, it's how he proves himself just, in the face of sin, but it's also how He proves to you that He loves you. So to be people who believe in grace, who live out of grace, understanding this means that it leads to the death of another, this is actually where God's judgment truly goes. That's what you believe. And it's not just where God's judgment truly goes. It's actually how you know that your sin has been truly put away and how you can actually live in light of that. But it's, it's not just that. It's also how you can trust that whatever God ordains is right because he has lost a son too. He understands hurt and tragedy too. He has not left you in the midst of your loss. He has entered that with you in the most personal of ways. And so what we are left with is what is your response to this? As we leave this section of David, what is our response to this as we look at this story, right? It, it is uh, this story, right, this gospel story, your story. Is it the story that flows out of your sin story? What is your response to this grace? And I'll leave us with one that I think is the most appropriate It's to follow David. It's to get up, wash ourselves, go into the house of the Lord, and worship. Why? Because he is good. And he is good all the time. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we are able to read and see as it pertains to David's life, how you have dealt with him. And perhaps just as powerful, how David has responded, giving us in many ways a blueprint to move forward when things don't go the way we want them to go. That we would move, move, move towards you in the midst of, of the consequences that we experience because of our sin and the way that we live in a broken world that doesn't work the way that it's supposed to work, that we would trust that you are good and that we would walk in light of the promises that you give us. Promises now bound up in your son Jesus, who we are told because of him, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Wherever we are this morning, May that be enough for us this day. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.